0: new teaching series uh, through the book of Esther. Just a show of hands, has anybody ever studied Esther before? Uh, Anybody the first time maybe looking at the book? Okay, cool. Well, great guys. Uh, This is exciting for us to go through an Old Testament narrative. If you guys were here in the fall, uh, we went through Ephesians for like 5,000 weeks and went word by word, verse by verse. And we like to do that in our church. Uh, This week, we're just going to spend, there's a series, we're going to spend four weeks on the book of Esther. It's a really flowing uh, story together. And I really want you to see something about God. And when you don't see him on the surface in your life, he's always working behind the scenes. And so as we begin, I want to ask you a question, kind of a polling question. Um, Have you ever felt that um, God has promised you something in your life in the scriptures but it's just not happening in your life. You guys know what I'm saying? Um, like he's promised you joy, but what do you experience? Sorrow. Like in the scriptures, he promises you peace, but maybe in your life you feel chaos. Or maybe he's promised you good, but all you have is struggle. Like, have you guys ever been in that spot? And that's where the Jewish people find themselves in the book of Esther. They're somewhere between God's promise and the promises pay off. Guys, see the book of Esther takes place in this specific time period between 478 and 473 BC, where many of the Jews during this time are actually in captivity away from their homeland, away from their culture, away from how they worship God because of the Babylonian exile. And the Jews are wondering, like many of us at times, has God forgotten me? Does God care about me? Like God promises all this stuff in scripture. He seems like he cares for all of these characters in the Bible and talks to them and cares for them. But what about me? Will he not provide and protect me like he has the people in scripture? And so what God does is that he gives us this book, this story of Esther, and he wants to set the record straight once and for all. And here's what I think he wants us to get in this book He wants us to know that he does not forget about us and God will always be faithful to his promises for us. Amen? That's the big takeaway I want you to get in the entire book. God has not forgotten you or your life or your story and he will always be faithful to fulfill his promises to you. The book of Esther, guys, is such a unique book. We're gonna get into it. I'm just giving you some introductory remarks so we can get a, Denise, yes! Oh man, I wish I'd give you a hug. It's so good to see you and have you back. Man, so good to see you, girl. Denise helped start this church and I am so happy to see her. Sorry if I embarrassed you. I was just, man, so good to see you, girl. All of you, it's wonderful to see Denise in particular though. Sorry, Denise, for embarrassing you. Man, it's good in my heart. Uh, yeah, the book of Esther is such a unique book uh, in that it never mentions actually the name of God. In 10 chapters, you never hear it say God. Lord, Holy One, anything. You never hear the name of God. You never hear him speak. He's never spoken of. And that's pretty interesting and very rare for the 66 books that make up the Bible. But why does God choose to include this story that doesn't include his name, doesn't include things about him, things that say things about him? And it's to show you this very important truth that we all need in pockets of our life. So let me give you this point here. Why does God give us this book? To show us that the hiddenness of God does not mean the absence of God. And for some of you, you need to hear that today for your own life, or for some of you, you need to store that in your back pocket for the future. Just because God seems hidden in the circumstances of your life does not mean that He is absent in your life. Just because you can't see God at work does not mean that He is not working. And even though God's name isn't mentioned in this entire book, his fingerprints are. His invisible hands of sovereignty and providence and faithfulness are actually pulling strings behind the scenes throughout this entire book to provide and to protect his people in the midst of adversity. In church, he'll do the same for you and he's doing the same for you. Guys, the book of Esther tells us this wonderful story of this Jewish girl named Esther. Her name actually means star. And she becomes this queen of Persia and God uses her to save her people from a plot that sent against them to destroy them. She's assisted in this rescue mission by Mordecai, her cousin and her current guardian. This whole thing takes place in the city of Susa, one of the Persian capitals, during the reign of King Ashuharis, uh, but he's better known in the Greek name by King Xerxes I. At this time, some of the Jews were actually allowed to return to Jerusalem, but Esther and Mordecai weren't allowed to go. They were stuck in captivity in Persia. As a minority group in Persia, the Jews were viewed as suspicious people and they faced common threats to their whole existence. And this historical narrative is given by God to show you, to show me that God never forgets his people and that he is always faithful to fulfill his promises towards you. So guys, you might be thinking right now in your life, or have you felt this? God, why aren't you answering my prayers? Like, where are you right now? Like, God, do you not hear me? Why do I feel like my prayers are just kind of bouncing off the ceiling? Maybe you're not in that place now, but you've been there, or maybe you're heading there. And I want you to see again, though you may not see God's hand working in your life, it's always working behind the scenes like a puppet master, pulling the strings of circumstances and events and relationships to work his good out for you. Does that make sense? So church, I hope that you're encouraged through the next four weeks. I hope you can grasp that even when you can't see God's hand in your life, you can trust his heart is good towards you. So here's what I want you to take away. This is kind of the big uh, main idea that you're gonna get for today. That listen, when you're between God's promise and its payoff in your life, I want you to trust that God's invisible hand is working in providential ways for your good and his glory. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, guys, let's jump into the book. Verse one of Esther chapter one. We're sort of going to work through these two chapters pretty quick. I'm going to give you some commentary, but it's a lot of Bible study that we're going to do over these four weeks. Verse one, we begin in the days of Ashuharis, the king who reigned from India all the way to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. It's a lot of land. In those days, when he sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, the capital of Persia, this was the third year of his reign. Guys, he gave a massive feast for all of his officials and his servants. And guys, listen, this was like the party of all parties. Like you thought in college, you went to a cool party with a lot of people. You had no clue how big this party is. Verse four tells us that this party lasted 180 days. This is the ultimate frat guy. This is a wild party. That's a six month party if you know math. <laughs> and the king spared no expense. Verse four says that he threw this party from self, why? To show off the riches of his glory that he had and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. This is a pretty arrogant guy. And boy, did this guy have riches. Verse six and seven says that the king's guests sat on couches of gold and silver. Now, listen, I've been to a lot of your houses. You jokers don't have golden sofa couches, neither do I. This is wild. And you guys have given me beverages at your house, but this party, they were drinking fine royal wine served from golden vessels. They spared no expense. Now that's a lavish party. Guys, most parties I go to are with my kids and they're like Paw Patrol themed. And I'm sipping Sprite out of a Paw Patrol themed mug. Like this is a whole different level of party that I'm not used to and probably you're not used to. As the story continues in verse five, we learn that the king concludes this 180 day marathon party with none other than a seven day mega after party. This is wild. Like the ultimate frat guy wins all the points with his friends in college, like the ultimate party. Now after this seven day party, or excuse me, this seven day party was for a different set of people than the officials or the leaders in the land. This seven day after party, verse five, was for all the people, present in Susa in the citadel, both great in their stature and small in their position. It was a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And at this party, the king's wife was there, verse nine, Queen Vashti. She also gave a feast to all the women in the palace. Verse 10, on the seventh day of this after party, after the 180 days of partying, when the king's heart was merry with wine, which by the way, is just an Old Testament way of saying that the king was sloppy drunk. He commanded his leaders, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown on her head in order to show the people and the princes all of her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now guys, on the surface, this sounds like a really innocent request by the king. But in reality, this king was requesting his wife to put on a show of a modesty, with her body for he and his buddies. Verse 12, But Queen Vashti has self-respect as she should, and she refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuch. Again, good for her, right? Like she rightly refused the king's immoral command to come and strut her stuff, which was the request for him and his drunk buddies. And she's like, nope, bump that. I don't care who you are. I don't care what happens to me. I'm not going. In some sense, good for her, Right. But boy, did that tick off the selfish, sinful king. Verse 12 says that the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So verse 13, here's what happens. The king does the equivalent of a temper tantrum Facebook post, okay? He airs out his grievances to the public and he asks for the opinions of the lawyers in the land what he should do to punish her. So this guy's a jerk is all we're learning, right? Verse 15 He's like, guys, guys, what do you think? Uh, According to the law, verse 15, "What what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of the king delivered by the eunuchs. Then comes along this one dude named Memucan, who probably trolls people on social media from his mom's basement. No disrespect if you live in your mom's basement, but you, you get the kind of stereotype of this guy. He just trolls people on social media all day. And here's how he responds to this Tentra uh Facebook poach. He's like, yeah, not only against the king has Queen Vashy done wrong, but also wrong against all the officials and all the people and all the providence of the king. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women. And then they'll cause them to look at their husbands with contempt and say, the king commanded Queen Vashi to be brought before him and she did not come. So dude basically is saying, bro, she not only embarrassed you in front of all your friends, but she did it in front of your entire kingdom. And if you don't punish her, she's gonna inspire all the women in the land to disobey a man's command. And we can't have that now, can we? Pretty sexist comment. Can we all agree? I didn't say it, okay? I'm just reading you what the Bible says, okay? No emails after church on this one, right? Verse 19, but Memo King concludes these sexist comments in verse 19, saying, if it pleases the king let a royal order go out and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. Here's the first thing, that Vashti is never again to come before the king. So Memo like, hey, king, banish her so she can never come before you again. Then number two, let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So his second option is don't just banish her, but divorce her. So when the decree is proclaimed throughout the kingdom, all the women will be afraid to disobey a man's commands and they'll honor their husbands. So basically, Memokim says, King, you got to create a law so that our women don't disrespect us like they disrespected you. So basically, all these dudes that are together are just afraid of their wives. It's <laughs> what's happening. They're like, you got to create a law so they don't tell us no. Now keep in mind, keep in mind, the incubator of stupidity is at the highest point it's ever been for this king. The king's drunk, his ego's wounded. He's been hammered for 187 days. The advice of his friends are terrible who has been drunk for 187 days. So obviously this story will not end well. Verse 21. So the king hears Memucan's half-baked idea to divorce Vashti, to get his law out. And his advice, it says, it pleased the king and the princes and the king did as Memucan proposed. And the verse chapter or 6, then chapter one ends in verse 22 with the king, 22, sending letters to all the royal providences to every providence in its own script and to every people in its own language that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. That's chapter one. Do you see anything about God in here? You see a pagan king getting drunk with his people, mistreating his wife. There's nothing about God in here, right? Why is this book in the Bible? What's happening? Chapter two, verse one starts with this. Well, when the anger of the king had subsided and he remembered Queen Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her, AKA the king sobering up and he feels bad for overreacting. He knows he messed up. He misses his wife. He can't take back the law that he put in place because it was a legal decree and it was punishable by death if he violated it. So he's feeling sad, verse one tells us. He's lonely, he's ashamed. Then his dumb friends come rolling in again. And rather than encouraging him to repent and reconcile with his wife, Queen Vashti, they create a horrible plan to try to cheer him up. So they say in verse three, let the king appoint officers and all the providences of his kingdom to gather up all the beautiful virgins to the harem and Susa, the citadel, under the custody of, of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. Let the young women who pleases the king become queen instead of Vashti. So this pleased the king and he did so. So if you're listening to this story, you heard right. This advice is incredibly dumb and stupid by his friends. So the king mandates a kingdom wide, over-sexualized beauty pageant for virgins. Yes, that is as terrible as it sounds. That was the advice for this king. And worse than that, the grand prize for winning this beauty pageant was that this woman who didn't know this king had to marry this self-absorbed, selfish king. What a terrible first place trophy, right? We did an ax throwing thing with some of our leaders, right? And you thought that little like trophy that was this tall was terrible. Imagine marrying this guy as your prize. This is terrible. So where is God's hand work if we take a pause? Where is it? We've been through like a chapter and a half. Where, where is God's hand here? Have you heard his name yet? Where is he at work? Where's the rescue of the Jewish people? All we are are just watching this complete crazy drunken party and this queen that gets divorced when she stands up for herself. How in the world is God going to rescue the Jewish people? It makes no sense. But you begin to see God, the, the puppet master, working behind the scenes, pulling the strings of circumstance and events and relationships, not circumventing our free will, but working in the midst of evil kings and evil people to set up something. Do you see? Guys, for your life, just for a moment, think about your life may seem just as chaotic. The things that have caused you issues right now might be as bad as the king. And you might be like Queen Veshti where something happened against you, where you were just trying to be moral and upright and say no and something bad happened to you. You might be like Esther, just living in a foreign land, away from your family. And all of a sudden you're going to learn she's kind of dragged in this mandated beauty pageant. And I want you to see that maybe your chaos is actually in control in God's hand. Maybe that hardship isn't God abandoning you, but setting something up for you. Do you see what I'm saying? Let's keep reading. Here's where we begin to see God's hand at work. Verse five. Now there was a Jew. You can see the entrance of God's people at this point. He was in Susa, the citadel, and his name was Mordecai, who had been, verse six, carried away from Jerusalem among the captives and carried away with the king of Judah, with whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai was raising Hadassah. That name just means myrtle. But she changed her name when she got in this beauty pageant to Esther, meaning star, And the daughter of his uncle, for Esther, listen, she had neither father and she neither had mother. And guys, we can assume that her parents might have actually been killed in the Babylonian takeover. Either way, we know that Esther is an orphan girl and her older cousin is raising her. So the young woman, Esther, it says that she had a beautiful figure. She was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai, her older cousin, took her in and raised her as his own daughter. And you already begin to see that God is caring for Esther behind the scenes. Yes, her mother and father died. Yes, they may have been killed. Yes, she's in captivity. Yes, she's away from the promised land. Yes, she is isolated, alone and confused. Why would you do this, God? And he sends her older cousin Mordecai to begin to reflect the care of God in her life. And he won't stop there. My friends, you might need that encouragement. I don't know what your past looks like. I don't know what you've been through, but you have might have felt like Esther. Why did you allow this to happen in my past? Why am I so like this? What is going on with my life? Do you not care about me? And you'll see God behind the scenes pull strings and, circumstance and begin to use that hardship for something good in your life. Now, the text says in verse eight, when the king's order, meaning this mandatory virgin beauty pageant was proclaimed, and when many of the young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken in the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who was in charge of the women. Now, did you notice what the text says here? Esther was taken. She was taken in the king's palace. God, she was put into custody. This was not a voluntary beauty pageant for her. She was taken by force. But it's here we see that God works behind the scenes to set up Esther to bring about his promises and his plans and so when things may look the worst for you like they did for Esther, not only was she in a foreign land, but now she's forced into a beauty pageant. When things look worst is maybe when God is doing something best. Does that make sense? We got to soak that in deeply for us. When things may look the worst, can God turn it and make it look for the best? If I can pause for a moment, wasn't that what Good Friday was about? That God can take something so terrible as the crucifixion of an innocent God, man, Jesus, something so evil and so bad, God can turn that and that very act of crucifixion was your very act of salvation. God can take something so evil and so wrong and turn it about for good. And for some of you, you need to to drink that in. Whatever happened to your past, whatever's going on with you, God can take what's evil and wrong and use it as a setup to bring about good in your life. Now, I looked like I was doing some Dragon Ball Z there for a moment, so no memes online, but it's a little bit what I was looking like there. But you see the point I'm trying to make, right? Verse nine, and the young woman Esther pleased the king. She won favor in his eyes and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion food. And she was given seven young women in the king's palace to help her with her treatment. And he put her up in the best place in the harem. So basically the king saw her. She's forcing this beauty pageant. There are thousands upon thousands of women that are virgins in this scene. The king catches her eye. They catch each other. He says, I'm gonna treat you to the best spa imaginable in my kingdom. And that's where she begins to go. Verse 10, Esther had not though made known her people or her kindred known to the king. She didn't want him to know that she was Jewish because they had beef with each other, the Persians and the Jews. For Mordecai, her older cousin was giving her some advice and said, hey, don't, don't make known your nationality because we are hated amongst these people. And if you're known, you'll be killed. So now fear strikes her heart. Oh man, her life is terrible. Mom and dad dead in a different country, forced in this beauty pageant. And now she, if her identity makes known, she's gonna, she's gonna get killed. Verse 11 And because Mordecai cared for Esther as his daughter, what did he do? Verse 11, every day he walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And then here's where the plot thickens. Here's where it gets real here. Verse 12, now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king's presence, so now the king's not just looking at the options. You're allowed to actually have this moment with the king. Some of us are bachelor or bachelorette fans. This is the one-on-one date. If you guys want to know an equivalent, some of you are like, oh my gosh, he's no I watch bachelor. No, God knows. I'm just kidding. Calm down, <laughs> calm down. Um, but this is the one-on-one moment with the king. And so here's what happens. After being 12 months under the regulations for the women to for beautification. They spent six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. It was a year long process from the first moment. He's like, yep, she's beautiful. Send her to my harem, send her to my best spa. Then she went through six different months of beauty treatment so that she could just go before him. A year, a year wondering if she's gonna die. She's ever gonna see Mordecai and have a meal with him again. If God has forgotten here, a year. Do you feel like you've been waiting for God to answer your prayer? Have you been waiting a long time? If so, you're in good company. God doesn't wait for your time. He works on his plan when the circumstances are aligned, when he's ready to move for your best interest. If you're in a season of waiting to be married, waiting to have a child, waiting for a new job, waiting for some breakthrough in your life, you can trust that you're not the one that moves it forward, it's the Lord. So like Esther, would you wait with hope and trust knowing that you're not forgotten, no matter what circumstance or hardship. I mean, she's probably going day in day out, getting oil treatment on her skin so she can be good enough before this selfish king. If you feel like you're in a similar situation, have hope. I want you to see what begins to happen in her life. I got off page a little bit, where am I going here? Okay, verse 13. Now, when the young woman went into the king in this way, the women were given whatever she desired, to take with her to sort of woo the king. So she can take whatever from the harem. It might be an inappropriate intimacy object that they can use together. It might be money. It might be clothes that she wears. She's allowed to take one item from this harem room, if you will. I don't want to be too graphic with kiddos, but you get, there's this options of room she can bring in to make the moment pleasurable with the king. In the evening, a woman would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody. Then she would not go in to see the king again unless the king delighted in what he experienced with her. And then she was summoned again by name. So unfortunately, you get the picture, don't you? Each of these women each of these women, were forced to spend the night with the king with whom she's not married yet. And if the king liked you, thought you were good enough, if you performed well enough, then he would summon you again. Man, how devastating was this for Esther? She knew God's ways, she was forced against her will to be in a situation with this king she didn't like or know or love. Verse 15. Now, when it was Esther's turn, she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised, which means she really brought nothing into this room. She believed that her character and her heart were enough. She'd have to perform for another man's pleasure, she would be herself. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, verse 16. And when Esther was taken into the king, into his royal palace, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set his royal crown on her and made her queen of Persia instead of Vashti. God, she was different than the rest. She knew her worth and didn't try to woo the king with anything else but her personality. She knew that God could even take something so evil and atrocity that was happening to her and he can even use this for good. So she walks forward confidently knowing that God can take a terrible situation that should have not happened in her life. And she turns it over to him. God, will you somehow use this for your good, for my good, for your glory? Verse 21, now in those very days, that one year frame where she was getting dressed up, Mordecai, her older cousin, just happened by circumstance. Maybe, right? Was sitting at the king's gate, which means that Mordecai worked for the king in some way. So it means when you sit at the king's gate, you work there in some way. And he overheard Thin and Teresh's conversation. And these were two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold. And they would become angry with the king and they sought to lay hands on the king. And this became knowledge to Mordecai. He sort of like tapped the telephones. He read the text thread. Somehow Mordecai got word just so happened to hear of this assassination plot. And so he took this word to the new queen Esther. Then Esther took it to the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the king investigated these affairs, verse 23, and found it to be true, the men who set up the plot were both hanged on the gallows, and what happened is this event was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai uncovered an assassination plot, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther told the king, and Mordecai's name. And this act of heroism was so big for the king that verse, 3 20, verse 23 tells us that it was recorded in the king's memory database called the book of Chronicles, where all the major events of the king were recorded. And this is super key for later in this story. End of chapter two. So let's summarize here. And can you see the hand of God? So far, we've been in two chapters and not once do we hear God's name. And it's hard for us to see his activity. So it seems, it looks like God has forgotten his people and for sure forgotten Esther. And they're questioning, and she might be questioning, God, are you gonna fail to fulfill your promises? Will you protect me? Will you restore me? And remember, they're in exile. They're forced to live in ungodly leadership with ungodly laws. And one of his people, who is Esther, is this orphan girl. Her parents, again, probably killed in the Babylonian invasion She's being raised in a foreign land with a foreign language and a foreign culture. And just when things start to settle out in her life under the watch of her new guardian, Mordecai, Esther is placed into custody and forced to partake in this over-sexualized beauty pageant against her will. She spends a year preparing her skin, hair, body for this one night stand with this king that she doesn't even know. She spends the night and wins the unlucky prize of having to leave the care of Mordecai and her Jewish customs to follow and become another wife among the horde of wives the king already has. Esther is left hopeless and helpless, and so are her people, stuck in exile, distant from God and his ways. But that's what it looks like on the surface. But what about behind the scenes? Have you begun to see the slow, invisible hand of God's sovereignty arranging the details to not only free Esther, but Esther's people as a whole one day? Do you see God's hands of providence here, pulling at the strings of circumstance to set up a plan to fulfill his promises? I want you to see it. Guys, with the few moments we have left, I just want to give you three take-home points, sort of as little freebies as we keep working in the weeks to come through this text. Three quick take-home points. I adapted this from Pastor Tony Evans These are really great things to grab hold in your heart. God wants you to know these three things. Number one, God wants you to know he is firmly and sovereignly in control of all of your circumstances. Let me say that again and really think about that. He is firmly and sovereignly in control of all of your circumstances. God is using Esther's circumstances to achieve his greater purposes. He is the puppet master pulling the strings behind the scenes to work out all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Yes, he works alongside of our free will, but our free will can never and will never thwart his sovereign purposes. So listen, church, nothing that happens to you personally, nothing that happens to you and I escapes God's careful attention as he shapes our lives to bring him glory. Romans eleven thirty six says it's from him and it's through him and it's to him are all things that happen. To him be glory forever and ever, amen. So listen, friend, whatever you're facing right now, I want you to know that God is sovereignly in control of it. And if you are a Christian, he will cause your circumstances to work out for your good and his glory. That's the first thing. He's firmly and sovereignly in control of your circumstances. But that's not enough to be hopeful in some moments, just to know he's in control of it. The second thing is vital for your heart. Number two, God wants you to know that his providence is working behind the scenes to control the circumstance for your good. Not only is he in control of it, but he's behind the scenes working it out for your good is what this point means. Esther's story reveals that God will providentially, listen, either cause or allow things to happen in your life in order to achieve his ultimate sovereign plan. You hear that? God's story with Esther reveals that he will providentially either allow things to happen to you or cause things to happen to you in order to achieve his ultimate sovereign plan and something good for you. Sovereignty, that word sovereignty means God's rulership over all of his creation, every molecule, every atom, Christian, non-Christian, God's sovereignty means his rulership over all creation. And providence though, is like this subset of sovereignty because providence reveals how God rules his creation behind the scenes, using circumstances to accomplish his sovereign will. So in other words, here's what I'm saying. God accomplishes his sovereignty and his sovereign plan by his providence behind the scenes. The providence of God is either something miraculous or something mundane. And he uses both in, in an interconnected way to bring about his sovereignty and good in our life. Let's take a pause for a moment. When you and I pray, when you and I want God to intervene, you and I just look for the miraculous. You and I don't want the Esther story. We want the Moses story. You put the staff down of prayer and part goes to the waters, right? That's what you want a miraculous thing to happen in your life. Do you know how God most works in scripture? It's the mundane, but it is no less God working than if it was miraculous. You might not see the circumstances panning out, but very much so is something panning out. Just a quick sort of silly example of this. I was furious the last semester of my college career, like rage, man, anger. I wanted to finish up my degree in four years. I mapped it out perfectly. I wanted to work uh, during the year in my classes. I wanted to work during the summer. I laid it out. I'm an Enneagram three. I've got issues with scheduling. I want to schedule everything out to a T. I planned it all. I met with my advisor, got it all laid out, take all the classes I'm supposed to, get to my last semester. And she's like, oh, you, you forgot to take these classes. What you mean? I didn't forget nothing. You forgot to tell me what was right. I did everything. I, I, I did all the things. So I took like skiing 101, burping 502. Like I did nothing my last semester, but I had to have a few more credit hours after I was told the credit hours would be sufficient. Now, should I have checked more? Arguably, but I checked about five times and met with the supervisor and the supervisor got fired from the college, but that wasn't my fault. She did that many people. That's another story for another day. I was furious. My plan was graduate from college, move to Greensboro, be a student pastor, which I was offered at the time, and go that direction. Had to call that church and say I don't know what's going on. I got to finish college, and you need to hire somebody else. Was ticked. I was furious. And in walks that summer in this girl named Emily Allison Scribner, my wife. Meet her that summer at a summer camp. I was trying to be as non-creepy as possible to pursue her. She said, no, she didn't want to go on a date with me. So I did the Manly thing. I Facebooked her and asked her on Facebook. She said, no, I don't want to go on a date with you, but I will willing to go in a group setting. So I was like, I'm getting random people together, get a group setting together to go hang out with Emily. Finally got together, go on a date. And we broke up numerous times back and forth. I'm doing this summer internship. I hated the church I was at previously for that summer. Just guys let you know, some of us were at that church. I love that church now, it's the church that sent us up here. All of that to tell you, I was furious and anger because I had situated my life in such a way to do my plan, to bring my good, and it was destroyed. Simple explanation, the credits weren't enough, but that ruined what I felt like my life. Now, I I do wanna say there might be worse things that happen in your lives. Uh, Of course, I'm not trying to downplay what happened in your life, but I'm just telling you, I had everything organized, but it was God's sovereign plan behind the thing to blow it up. Nope, blow it up. You, you, you're not going to Greensboro. You're going to go to this church. Nope, you're going to meet this girl. Nope, you're, you're, you end up going to go with this path. Then a couple years down the road, here we are in Boston. We're all together, together. So I want to just share a moment in my life, how frustrating and how angering it was to say goodbye to a job that I, was like my dream job with the church that I first heard the gospel in, that I first took a trip to Boston. All those things were so near and dear to me and it blew up, but I never would have met Emily we never would have moved to Boston. But in didn't meet Emily. We, we, could I have biological kids one day? I, I, I have no idea. But Emily and I, the way our bodies work together, we've talked about, we're not able to have biological kids. Would I not have Kiana and Shisera? All of these things. And I was some angry turd kid in college that was just angry that God didn't care for my life and I wasn't able to graduate college on time. So you might have something heavier for you something that's more heartache than just graduating college late. But God works no different for you than he did for me and all the other characters in the scriptures. God providentially is working behind the scenes. Guys, what are the odds that the king calls a party and gets drunk beyond belief? Like what are the odds that he calls his wife to show herself and she rejects him? And then he passes a law, divorcing his wife, requiring Virgin to participate in a beauty pageant race to be queen. Then what are the odds that Esther would just be in that land and be an unmarried Jewish woman? What are the odds that the king finds her more attractive than all the other women in the land? What are the odds that she wins the competition, marries the king and becomes the queen of Persia? What are the odds that just two guys are plotting to kill the king and Mordecai just happens to hear the plan? And then he happens to gain access to Esther when that's difficult because she's the queen to let her know the assassination plan. And the king just so happens to trust this new wife he has to do this investigation plan with two guards that he trusted. What are the odds that, this, that, that the claims would come back that would have enough evidence to prove these guys as guilty? What are the odds that Mordecai's now name would be written down in the king's chronicles, which would be a huge thing later we're gonna come in the coming weeks? Listen, what are the odds? There are no odds with God. It's only his providence moving through details to bring about his ultimate good. There are no coincidences. There are no odds. It's all a part of the plan. I want you to hold that and see that. Whatever struggle, whatever difficulty, whatever hardship, there are no odds. It's the plan. So listen, when you begin to understand, like I am just beginning to and struggling to, when you begin to understand God's sovereign plan and his providential ways to make it happen, you'll begin to be conscious of his fingerprints. When he seems absent, you'll be able to look backwards and say, wait wait a second, wait a second. I didn't graduate college so I could meet this girl and I meet this girl we can't have kids. We can have Keanu Chassier. We moved to Boston and all these things begin to happen. I can look backwards and I can see God's fingerprints. It's almost like the, I don't know, like the, whatever the dark light is at like some rave party and you can see all the, I don't know, maybe I went crime scene there for a second, but you get what I'm saying? You kind of look backwards and you can see all the fingerprints. Guys, that's what I want your heart to see. Look backwards for a moment. It might be hard to see how God is working, but maybe it's because he's still working it out for you. Last thing I want you to see here, number three, when you can't see God in your circumstances, when you can't see him, you're trying hard, you're praying, We need to remember that there is far more happening behind the scenes than what we can see. So I want you to do three things when you can't see and you're struggling and you're bitter and you're wondering, why is my life happening the way it is? Three things. I want you to trust. I want you to wait. And I want you to walk in faith. I want you to trust. I want you to wait. And I want you to walk in faith. Listen, you might be in the place the Jews found themselves in this point in history today. In this life, you will have moments like Esther faced when God's promises you something in scripture, their protection, that they would have the land of milk and honey, that they would be at Jerusalem. That's what Esther was promised. But you don't see how it's possible. You might feel in that same spot right now. And not only does it look impossible for you, but your life situation might be just getting worse. You look at the promises like Romans 8, 28, and you're like, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. And you're like, good? Look at my life. Look at my past. You're like, my family struggles work together for good. What about my marriage struggles? Are they working together for good? My job, my school, my anxiety, my sickness, my busyness, my stress, my past. Is that working out for good, God? God's like, we've all been there. What do you do in the gap between God's promise to you in scripture and its payoff? Guys, you can either doubt God, lose faith and give up hope or you can trust the source who gave you the promise. You grip the scripture that tells you the promise and you wait in faith for God to move. And friends, that's exactly what it seems that that Esther seems to do. And when you do the same, you'll see that God is sovereign over your circumstances. Last brief story here. We've got a really good friend in Pittsburgh and him and his wife were seeking to adopt a teenage girl. And they were just a few weeks away from solidifying that adoption with her. And they had built a relationship. They'd done their visits. They had done their uh, overnight stay to build a health and relationship. They start doing weekends and weeks. And all of it seemed like it was going in a great direction. This was their uh, first Um, daughter. They're not able to have biological children uh, either. And they were really excited about this happening a few weeks before they could finalize this and move forward to adoption. Change in circumstance happens with her and the family. She is removed from that home. There's no sin that happened there. There wasn't anything immoral. There's nothing wrong, but a whole change of search situations for them. And he and his wife were devastated. They had one more weekend with her. Our church and student ministry had gone up that week to spend time with them. She had heard the gospel from some of our students. She gave her life to Christ and they never got to see her again. The only thing that gives their family hope is that maybe we went through all the heartache thinking that she would become my daughter just for her to become my sister in Christ. And for him and his wife, they said, "That's, that's enough for me to know that the circumstances and the situation didn't end up how I wanted it, but exactly how God designed it. And when you and I can trust God with the hurt and the pain that all of that causes, you begin to see God work. And with that hurt and with that pain, you trust in heaven that God will heal all that's undone, all that's left in pain. And this is the hope we have Isaiah 55, 8, nine. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Esther is a part of a much larger story, friends, that runs all the way from Abraham, all the way to Christ and through him to the church. If these two guards would have succeeded in their plan to kill the king, the Jewish people as a whole would have been destroyed and your savior would have been destroyed. The option of him getting to his line would not have happened. You and I would be left in our sin. We would never have eternity. And so it just happens behind the scenes, the puppet master puts Mordecai in route to hear two guards and assassination. And you follow that line and you have a savior that died for you on the cross. Something so simple, something so random, meaningless, was on the path, for something, for God's glory and your good, would you trust him? So as we conclude, church, remember, when you're in between God's promise and its payoff, would you trust that God's invisible hand is working in providential ways to bring you good and his glory? Let's pray.